station, but we're here for a real education. Welcome to A Real Education. I'm your host, Tim Wick, joined, as always, by movie super aficionado, Melissa Kersher. Yay! Super Hello. aficionado. Super aficionado. And frequently we are joined by movie not-so-super uh, non-aficionado, <laughs> Jenny Young, which she's not here. So we have a stunt Jenna, stunt Jenny Young tonight, and she will be played by Pat Wick. Yay! Yay! Now, unlike Jenna, Pat uh, has actually seen a lot of movies, so this has posed a challenge as we've had to come up with an emergency film to fill in uh, for Jenna's lack of presence tonight. But uh, what we were going to do, we originally had planned on doing Man on Wire, but of course Pat has seen Man on Wire. Very good film. Yeah, so uh, instead we had to go into the archives and we have chosen The Dirty Dozen. Yes. Which... Technically, Pat, you have seen. Is that not correct? I believe so. My dad was a huge World War, well, one or two buff, but pretty much if there was a World War II movie on television, no matter what time of day or night it was, I was allowed to stay up and watch it with him. So I watched an awful lot of World War II movies. I'm assuming I have, but it was probably about the time when I was 10. So we're talking, say, 34 years ago. Okay, so maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't. So that's good enough Yes. Uh, for our rules. And <laughs> what what do you know about The Dirty The Dirty Dozen is a movie where it's World War II, obviously we're setting up this way, that uh, is a, like a major or a general or a colonel, probably a colonel or a major, anyways, is tasked to lead a group of, I believe, 12 convicts (laughs) uh, that are given the choice of sign up for the suicide mission, and if you survive, then you will go free. And if you don't, well, you are basically going to be put to death anyways, or life in prison. And these people all decide to join this suicide mission to go into Germany or France or somewhere in Europe before (laughs) D-Day to do some uh, major damage to a group of officers. I know this because it's just, I know about the movie. Well, and you've seen uh, Inglorious Bastards. And yes, it's very, very <laughs> much like Inglorious Bastards. Yes. So it's got that same thing. Um, of course, not everything goes perfectly. There's a huge cost of victory, and I think two or three of them survive to the final reel. Okay, all so right. if all of that's correct, you in fact know a great deal about this movie. Uh, I'm not going to say that it's correct or not because that's the way things work here. But, <laughs> uh, if, if it's also a World War II movie. Where their group of people get together like cockle shell heroes, which is it's, a pretty horrid movie, but it's it was a fun movie. I watched a bunch with my dad. It fits into the genre that people frequently refer to as the mission movie. Yes, mm-hmm. it is a bunch of people going on a mission, uh, saving Private Ryan. Uh, yes. While a very different kind of film mm-hmm. can also be sort of fit into that mission movie, and I guess. The reason that these movies exist, as far as I can tell, is because if you tried to show the entire battle, if you tried to show everything, it just would never be able to get onto screen properly. But with a mission movie, what you can do is take a particular part of a war and really boil it down to a bunch of people that the audience can relate to. You know, D-Day was tens of thousands of people storming a beach. And... Other, other things that were going on at the same time. I mean, it wasn't even just the beach at Normandy. There's all this stuff going on outside of that. But if you can get, get it down to, well, there's this one little piece of the storming of Normandy that we can 
humanize with these characters, even if it's fictional, which most of these films, and definitely The Dirty Dozen, is fictional. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, the m- mission movie sort of humanizes a, a battle. And that's... Inglorious Bastards is kind of the same thing. It's a mission movie. Yeah. But it's a Quentin Tarantino mission movie. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and I do know that the actors are in it are all people almost everybody knows their name of or will recognize, much like, although a different kind of movie, Ocean's Eleven are like, yeah, I know all those guys. Yeah. I mean, there's Telly Savalas and, um, oh, God, Kiefer Sutherland's dad, Donald Sutherland. Mm-hmm. Um... And I know I've, uh, Casavares is in there. Uh, is his name Michael Casavares? These are all <laughs> actors that I know and reckon. Charles Bronson, I know, is one of them. Yeah. Um, so these Charles are Bronson, whom we've yeah. seen in The Magnificent Seven here yes. on A Real Education. Yes, so. and it, it's a name-that-actor sort of movie. Yes. yes. There, there are a lot of name-that-actors in, in this one. Yeah, that, so uh, Melissa, any thoughts that you have on The Dirty Dozen before we dive into the film that Pat may or may not have nailed almost perfectly? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm ex- excited to watch it again. I like to watch Dirty Dozen about once a year because oh. I find it to be a tremendous amount of fun. Ooh. So this is, one of, this is one of your comfort films? This is one of my comfort films. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know exactly it how is that fun. is. Yeah, so, all right. Well, we're going to go, and we're going to watch The Dirty Dozen. We'll see how things go, and uh, when we return, uh, we'll talk about the film in considerably more depth. Until then, enjoy whatever music I pick out between now and when this episode goes up. Hey! <laughs> the bush is lovely. It thrills you with delight. The flowers on the bramble bush are also pink and white. But if you reach to... And we're back. There are dead Nazis strewn all over an exploded chateau. They're in small pieces indeed. I mean, the one thing you learn about the movies is that uh, if you want somebody to kill that nobody's going to care about, Nazis are the best. Yeah. You can just pretty much kill willy Nazis willy-nilly. Nobody feels bad for them. It could be you, androids or Nazis. Yeah, you can yeah. pack you can pack Nazis into a crowded theater and just shoot the shit out of them. It's no problem. Mm-hmm. Killing Nazis... Absolutely a carte blanche. Uh, so anyway, Pat, uh, this is not your first time seeing the movie, but the first time in memory seeing the movie. So, And actually, I haven't seen the beginning of that movie. That, that was not at all familiar until they started attacking the chateau. Holy ah. cow. Wow. So I only remember, I mean, I don't remember any of it before that, but the chateau was very familiar. But, I mean, it does follow the... the way mission movie stories run. I mean, typically what you do is you get introduced to this band of misfits who somehow need to be whipped into shape. Mm-hmm. Somehow. And then uh, they get whipped into shape. They prove their mettle. Mm-hmm. And then they go on the mission on which, uh, if the movie's made like most mission movies, many of them uh, die. But yeah. the mission does succeed. The mission, yeah. The mission pretty much typically will succeed. But the, the individual sent on the mission will, well, they have varying life expectancies. <laughs> uh, Very all true. Of them, all of them typically reserved until the final reel. Except for the Hispanic. We kill the Hispanic early. Well, there was a uh, reason for that. Oh, was in there a, a reason a, for that? There was a reason for that. Uh, the Hispanic was uh, played by Trini Lopez, who had a singing career. 
And uh, Frank Sinatra told him that he needed to get off of the movie shoot as soon as possible or else his singing career would die off because the movie shoot was taking so long. So Trini Lopez quit the film. And so they wrote him out. Which is why they didn't even show a body in the tree, really. Yep. Interesting. Yep. So uh, whatever was left, um, you know, plot points that were supposed to be played out by that character were given to other characters. Did he uh, regret that decision? I don't know. No, we don't. We don't have any yeah. any word on that. But uh, yeah. yeah, he uh, he did not. Yeah, we didn't even get to see a body. But that is, I, I got to say, from a from a war movie cliche perspective, uh-huh. somebody in the in the paratrooping group dying in a tree mm-hmm. is really, really right up there. Oh yes. <laughs> uh, if you're going to send a gang of people paratrooping, one of them is going to die in a tree. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, or I'm become sure, completely incapacitated. I'm sure that's probably very true, too. Yeah, it, it, parachuting isn't real safe around trees, as I understand. In the middle of the night when you don't know what you're about to yeah, precisely. land on. And, and guys who presumably maybe were not as well-trained in parachuting. Very true. They had a couple of days. They got a couple of days <laughs> of parachute training. They probably jumped out of a plane at least once. It probably mm-hmm. wasn't just jumping from the top of a tower into a... Net, mm-hmm. or whatever it is they do, I don't know. So the the thing about this movie, and the thing about a lot of war movies, is the question of do war movies glorify war? And I think there there are war movies that do, mm-hmm. and war movies that do not. There there are some who say that uh, that was our cats chasing each other through the room. If you heard that noise in the background. <laughs> There's some who say that the inherent act of making a movie about war glorifies war, mm. which is an interesting point of view. Um, now, this movie, I, I would, I mean, it's about World War II, which I, from an American perspective is a sexy war. Well, yeah, because I think that's the most recent war we were, where we were unequivocally on the right side. <laughs> I mean, you can, well... I would would argue, yes, we are on the right side. The Japanese were horrid for what they were doing to their part of the world. And the Germans were also, I wouldn't say equally horrid. They were probably... They were really horrid. They were really horrid and doing dastardly things, but the Japanese weren't that much better, and the Italians, well, were present. Yeah, they were kind of along (laughs) for the ride. But, uh, you know, what I I was pausing was... uh, I was going, were we really on the right side in Korea? Eh, nobody but, knows but, what the know, right not, side was Nobody knows what the right side... Yeah, I mean, it, World War II is the last time America can point to a war and say, you know, we've done good. Yes. We totally had this right. Yeah. And we've been sort of surfing that victory for... Decades. decades. a long time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a big thing with us. So... You know, when you make a movie about World War Two, you're like, "Woo, look at us, USA, totally fucked up the Germans." <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so, and and you know, there are very cynical World War Two movies out there, and this isn't necessarily one of them. I mean, this one does have kind of a nihilistic, cynical streak to it, but it's not well, about war. But it's about it's, it's about it's about war taking these guys who are disgraced human beings. I mean, mm-hmm. some of them. All right, you know, you've got the the Charles Bronson character who is going to be executed for murder, but it seems like what he was doing was shooting a deserter. Mm-hmm. 
who, if, you know, I mean, when you hear his story, you kind of get the feeling that he was killing somebody who was, who was a traitor. Right. Uh, but since he didn't do it in the right way. You know, and Jim Brown's character uh, it was basically, he killed people in self-defense. Mm-hmm. You know, or Clint Walker's character, you know, it's the, I didn't mean it. Yeah. You know, I didn't know just, my own strength. Yeah, he 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 lost his temper, but, he, you know, clearly it his, wasn't in his primary nature to do that sort of thing. His intent was not necessarily to yeah. kill when he struck the person that he yeah. killed. So, And then on the flip side of it, there's Telly Savalas. Telly Savalas' character who has no redeeming features whatsoever. Yes. He's just a crazy sociopath with God delusions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they never they never redeem him, which I think is actually admirable. Yeah. They're like, no, no, this character's nuts. He's dangerous. He is a cold-blooded murderer and he is never going to be anything different mm-hmm. um, and that's the risk you take when you put a team like this together is, <laughs> yeah. is you're, you're saying well these are cold-blooded killers and we're assuming most of them are going to die so we're really okay with that mm-hmm. um, but but all of these characters even Telly Sabalas's character are redeemed through the mission. And so, to the, to me, there is a certain glorification of war in that sense. Because really what these guys are doing is being sent to murder a bunch of people. But it's okay because it's war and they're Nazis. Yeah. And this, this movie is very indulgent in the explosions and testosterone factor. I mean, it, whether or not it glorifies war, you know, are points that you can argue. But, you know, really it all boils down to seeing manly men shoot a bunch of things and... And explosions, which and, which you is know. you know, there's a certain appeal to that. And grow beards, they grow beards. They grow beards, and they <laughs> you know, they fight and punch things, and you know, and they show what it is to be a manly man and how great Americans were and are. And one of the things mm-hmm. I point, bring that up now is that it was made in 1967, oh, yeah. which was really at the. Not quite the height, but the what the hell are we doing in Vietnam and what we're doing there isn't good. Right. So this was, I think, a thing of, hey, let's remember that Americans can be really good and awesome and patriotic and and killing the bad guys is a good thing. Mm -hmm. But there's also kind of the subversive factor of these, these are the misfits that are succeeding without the rules of the military. Yeah, there's kind of this counterculture appeal to it as well. You've got Lee Marvin's character, who's considered kind of a maverick. Yeah. You've got you've got the the colonel that hates Lee Marvin's character, who's the closest thing to an antagonist this film has. Yes. In that he's deli- and, and 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 it kind of bugs me in a sense that he never gets any come up comeuppance for the fact that he was deliberately disobeying an order. Mm-hmm. Because you know, he was told, this is a secret mission. These men are going to be training on your base. You yeah. let them use your base. Yeah. And, and all he's trying to do is subvert their mission. You know, but he never takes any, he never, he never gets any, uh, any, uh, any kind of comeuppance for that at mm-hmm. all. In fact, he's practically commended for it <laughs> when he goes in to their camp. Which he has no right to do. Yeah. Except that he outranks Lee Marvin. Mm-hmm. 
So it's interesting in the sense that the commanding officers in this film above Lee Marvin, none of them are really painted in the most pleasant and, of light. And there's all this infighting that's going on between them all, which is, you know, kind of fun because it's Robert Ryan and Ernest, Ernest Borgnine and, you know, George Kennedy's along for the ride. And <laughs> having a great time. <laughs> oh, George Kennedy. I love George Kennedy so much. He's he's so awesome. I will watch pretty much any movie with George Kennedy in it. You know, and he he's always playing these you know B level roles, but he's always such a joy to watch. Yeah, well, the cast in this is you know one of those oh it's true pretty much A list casts almost from top to bottom. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, unless you're talking about women, but well, this is not a movie about women. (laughs) Not not even a little. There there are women as window dressing occasionally, and that's that's it. And for the kind of movie it is. There isn't there a really role isn't. for one. Right. Because there's nothing there to be said about a woman's character in that movie. Mm-hmm. So I'm okay with it flunking the Bechdel test. Yeah. It's... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. However, going back, you know, the thing of the colonel who just desperately wants to know. He has to know and he has to... Put Lee Majors, Lee Majors, Lee, Lee Marvin. Marvin's character down because he's like, oh, this guy needs to be shown down a peg, and I need to know what's going on. And let's face it, this is supposed to be into the weeks leading up to D-Day, right? Where secrecy was paramount, and you couldn't say tell anybody anything about what was happening, where you were, what was going on, and if you knew that there was this group of people that. As far as, you, you know, you were told that they did not exist from your perspective. And that, that he did that, he would have been court-martialed and probably shot for treason for what he did. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it, the fact that he does this, and it's so near the end of the war that nothing happens to him. And that's just kind of irritating. Well, to be fair, this this movie was um, a huge hit when it came out. It was oh, absolutely. Uh, one of... I think it was MGM's biggest hit of the year, which means it was followed by a number of TV movies, which I have not seen. But we can always hope that the court martial happened. Wasn't there there, there was wasn't there another theatrical film? Uh, it was like, like another Dirty yeah, Dozen, another Dirty yeah, Dozen, or something yeah, like that. Something like that. You know, yeah. because that went over really well, so they just you know kept kept finding more convicts to <laughs> to uh, uh, reprieve and then kill off. Uh, and I think Lee Marvin was in the was in the sequel. I I could be looking that up on the IMDb right now, yeah. but. But we're talking, but yeah, I'll uh, I'll double check that. But I'm I'm pretty sure that there was a sequel, a theatrical sequel, which of course didn't do as well. Yeah, I think he was in it, even though he really did not like this film at all. Uh, he did serve in World War II. He was a sniper in the Marines, and he wasn't crazy about war. So, and he felt that this movie was kind of glorifying war, and he just didn't like the message of it if there was indeed a message at all but uh yeah he was yeah the message uh, the message seems to be uh splody things are fun yeah and uh hey redemption isn't redemption awesome yeah also the movie kind of plays fast and loose with you know how things would work in the military you know the court court martial you know being a big one but yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um in nineteen eighty five, the Dirty Dozen Next Mission that did have 
Lee Marvin, and also Ernest Borgnine. Oh, my. But not till 1985. Interesting. 18 years later, with the release date of February 4th. The next mission. Mm -hmm. Next mission. Tagline, they're back and deadlier than ever. (laughs) Except none of the original... Well, most of them were dead. <laughs> yeah, well, most of them got killed off in the first movie. Yeah. The only one that was left was... Uh, Bronson. Bronson, and he probably was not in the mood to do that either. Well, he, w- he was making the fifth Death Wish sequel by that time. <laughs> death uh, Wish. Ah, yes. Death Wish 5. More oh. wishing for death. Yes. Oh, Bronson. Uh, I, I, I love pretty. I love this cast. Uh, you know, John Cassavetes, I want to choke to death on most of his scenes, but he's really good at being that person you love to hate in on the team. And He was irritating, know. but you yeah. didn't want him, like, hurt. Well, hurt, but hurt. not dead. Hurt, but not dead. Yes. Which is really interesting, because he's, he's a filmmaker of some renown. I mean, he's a phenomenal film director, and he directs these really nuanced, personal, lovely, beautiful films. And then you see him as an actor in something like this. And <laughs> and it kind of goes counter to the stuff he produced on his own. Fascinating. Yeah. But it's also one of those things that when you see an actor play the same role over and over again, how much is that actor just its work? Oh, yeah. They want me to play this role. Oh, yeah. And, and John Cassavetes made a name for himself, you know, yes. playing roles like that. And he played a lot of them. Uh, and I... You know, I don't know a whole lot about his life, but I would, I would bet that the money he made off of acting funded the movies that he made himself. Mm-hmm. Which themselves are not yeah. uh, super well-known movies. He they're they're not blockbuster movies. They're yeah. they're very personal little dramas. Like Woman Under the Influence, which I saw recently, is is a uh, very delicate drama about a uh, woman with, um, I think, manic depression. Oh. And uh, it's just kind of peering in at her life and how she interacts with her family and how it kind of all starts falling apart because of her mental illness. And, it, and um, yeah, it's, it's this really sensitive movie about, oh, you can really see why... You know the the man she's with really loves her, and then it all goes sour with her mood, and then it, you know, you can see the highs and lows that happen that really happen in a relationship like that, and that's the sort of stuff that John Cassavetes directs, which is very different from what we just saw, what he gets cast in. Yeah. And then he goes to do the Dirty Dozen, and he refuses to shave or wash. Yes. Uh, I did not know that's why they were referred to as the Dirty Dozen. Because the part that I remember was I just thought they were dirty fighters. Yep. Because yeah. I didn't remember anything before that. Or dirty being the fact that they're they're kind of made dirty by their uh, their criminal behavior. Right, right. Um, just, uh, I'm sure it has multiple meanings. Ooh, I'm sure it does. Layers. What do you have written down on your trivia sheet there, Melissa? Well, Melissa actually, they, the, the, the movie was loosely based or at least took a nugget of its origin from a real troop of people named the, uh, the Filthy Thirteen. Ooh. Yeah. And uh, they were a t- demolition team during World War II. And that's about where the, the coincidence <laughs> ends between the real story and the book that this was based on. But 
<laughs> but uh, yeah, they. So from, in Hollywood, they were like, tell, we like this name. The story completes shit, but buy it anyway. From what I could tell, the 5013 were, were named that way because they were known for not shaving and, and being kind of scuzzy. But yeah. But they had stuff to blow up. Yeah, they, you know, they, were they had stuff to blow up. So, yeah. of course, you're going to get grit on you if you're going to blow shit up. Yeah. Yeah. And you're going to smell like sulfur, probably. Mm. And soldier, let's face yeah. it. They, they probably didn't smell nice. Yeah, well, yeah. not a lot of soldiers had opportunities to bathe that often when they were on on duty. Mm-hmm. I mean, out in the field. Not, not. They were hanging out on base. They probably bathed just fine. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, the point is when they were out shooting other soldiers, they probably didn't have a lot of time to bathe. They were more focused on shooting. Right. Mm-hmm. Other soldiers. Oh, yeah. There were some things that I thought were fascinating choices that the characters made in the attack. I thought their attack on their proving grounds mm-hmm. of, you know, switching back and forth between the red or the orange bands and the blue bands to prove that they could do this mission. But once they get to doing it, for some reason, like, they don't give everybody German soldier outfits when they obviously had them. Right, two, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they had they had th- at least three. three. That's yeah. At least three, but there's no way you're telling me they couldn't figure out how to get thirteen. <laughs> Just for the average well, the two wandering guys in a machine past. gun nest didn't really. I mean, if you found two guys in a machine gun nest, you... but it's one of those things that gives you pause. Mm-hmm. If you know you're fighting and you run across people in your own uniform, it would give you pause before going, unless you knew for sure. Like, why in the world would Lee Marvin's uh, character, um, (laughs) in the middle of the attack, decide to take the, what, minute it took to strip off the uniform and just wear his American uniform? Because America. Right, but there's no reason to do that. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah, I I think it was more for uh, just the clarity of narrative. Just because there's a whole... They're There's not a large playing, number. They're of, not playing Nazis anymore. Therefore, they should not be dressed in Nazi uniforms. Well, well, that like and that. the movie at that point is following a dozen, you know, of our characters around screen. And if the if a shot needs you as a viewer to identify one of our characters versus a Nazi at a glance, it helps to not have our own own quote unquote own people in Nazi uniforms. But considering the actor they had doing it, this wasn't his first role. Oh, I know. But there's a lot of stuff in that final sequence that was shot at a distance. So that was probably a big part of it. There's also, and, and that we were discussing while watching the movie, there's the whole question, well, why would you put the horrible, horrible bigot with the black guy? Yeah. When oh, they're, the sociopathic bigot? Yeah. When, yeah. when they're, when they're why, why would you put him in the machine gun nest or something like that where... Yeah. You know, he'd he'd probably have a great time just killing Nazis at a distance, and mm-hmm. that'd be fine. But but no, you put him with the one character whom he most despises in a situation where his psychotic tendencies are most likely to come into play. Mm-hmm. Um, seems like a bad plan for a. Yeah, and why would you put the black guy inside the chateau where you know obviously Nazis would look at him, and go, hey. He's not one of ours. Of course, by the time they see him, it's supposed to be too late. It's well, time yeah. To... It doesn't matter. He's They're still approaching the chateau if he's actually seen. 
Mm-hmm. You can maybe try to write off some of the other things. It's like, why wouldn't you have them in, all in Nazi uniforms? Give people the pause of, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what I'm seeing. Oh, this isn't the right thing. Uh-oh, I'm, it's too late, I'm dead. But having a black person enter the chateau at all and in an American uniform looking like, you know, death <laughs> coming for you, which all of them did, but you know, there is no pause of, hey, wait a minute. I just enjoy the fact that they've got Jim Brown, you know, oh, he's he's, uh, he's a running back player. in the NFL. He's an, he's a football player. Considered one of the greatest running backs ever to play the game. And I, and I enjoy the fact that in this movie, there's this point right at the end of the movie where he gets a chance to just run. Yep. You know, it's like, <laughs> if you get Jim Brown, he's going to he, run. He's got to run at some point. That's that's really important. And they wait right until the end of the movie. They're, the entire audience is watching the movie. They've got to know who Jim Brown is. And they're like, when does he get to run? <laughs> <laughs> and, and this movie is the movie that... Um, well, you know, since it was running over schedule, which is what drove Trini Lopez out of the film, um, it was encroaching upon training season for the NFL. And the NFL told Jim Brown, well, we're going to suspend you if you don't show up for training. And Jim Brown, being one of the most valuable players in football, said, screw that, I'll retire. <laughs> and he did. And they said, well, we, uh... Yeah. So did he come back from the retirement, or... I I really don't know that much. I don't think he did. um, He was, like, 29, wasn't he, or something like that? Yeah, he was one of those players that just kind of walked away from the game at a time that baffled everybody as to why Mm -hmm. he walked away from the game at that point. And he's like, you know what? I don't need this. Well, he was like, "This, this game wrecks your body that's true uh Mm -hmm. and i now have a promising film career that will pay me actually probably at the time more money yeah oh sure you can make it a professional as a professional football player and so he just decided to to go that direction one thing i think is really interesting about this and i mentioned it while we watched the movie is the fact that they had of these 12 guys in the unit one guy was black and nowhere was it integrated in the military. Military wasn't integrated until 1948. And it was considered just crazy at that time as well. So the fact that they go through all of these training scenes and all this other stuff, and they really barely mention the fact that there's a black guy there. Mm -hmm. And even when the group combines together when they become all stinky and dirty, and they're like, no, it's us against them, it's never pointed out by other people. Which I find fascinating. Well, I, they even went to, through the trouble, well, and given when it was made, that may have something to do with it, since we're dealing with the civil rights era. Yeah. Uh, but the other interesting thing about that fact is that they actually make his character into one of the leaders yeah. of the unit. You know, it's very clear that that uh, Casavante is, is sort of the... Casavetes. Casavetes, excuse me. is sort of the, I don't want to say spiritual leader, but he's almost the emotional core for these guys. But Brown and Bronson constitute the intellectual core. Mm -hmm. It's like they're the ones that are aware of the relevance of this situation. It's like if we can get these guys all to work together, then the two of us have a chance of not going to the gallows. You know, or if we die, at least we die in a way that's not being hanged. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that's what the one other character says is is that for him it's like, well, yeah, he's probably going on a suicide mission. He's probably not going to come home, but at least he's going to die in a way that's quote respectable unquote. And at least his family can be proud of him, rather than having to say that their son was was hanged by the military for murder. Um, so, and it's, again, it's the two characters who have the most misunderstanding about why they're the the two characters whose whose acts are at least justifiable, mm-hmm. at, at at the very least justifiable, if not possibly heroic. You know what what uh, what Bronson's character did is possibly a heroic act. And what Brown's character did was definitely self-defense. Mm-hmm. But it didn't matter. It didn't matter because he was a black man and he killed white people. Yes. Um, but the way that they... But again, Brown is, is cast as this sort of the, one of the intellectual leaders of this group. But they never talk about the fact that he's black, which I think is kind of interesting. It's almost an example of colorblind casting in the sense that it seems like they wanted brown and didn't worry about the fact that the unit wouldn't have been integrated. Couldn't have been integrated. It was right. illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that's an interesting point. That one I wonder, did you find anything about that in your search through I the trivia? Didn't, I the, didn't know. The trivia vaults, Yeah, Melissa? I didn't see anything about that. All right. Anything else from the trivia vaults? Well, um... Not a whole lot. Uh, well, just random trivia. Uh, Lee Marvin was actually one of the first celebrity supporters of gay rights. Huh. He was straight, but he was one of the first people to support gay people in the industry and and even said he'd be willing to play a gay character in the film, in a film, because he was completely solid in his own sexuality. Wow. So, wow. like... No, that's a man. <laughs> Lee Marvin was a man's man. He was yeah. such a man's man, he was okay with other men who weren't man's men. Or were, but were also really gay. man's men. Like, like Rock Hudson. Man's man. Hot damn. <laughs> yeah, that that was one thing that, uh, when I was looking up trivia about this film, that's one thing I didn't know about, so I was kind of uh, fascinated by that. Uh, I did want to talk about Robert Aldrich for a couple minutes because he was the director of this movie Uh and a director of some renown. He did stuff like Whatever Happened to uh, Baby Jane. Ah. He did Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, which is another amazing uh, female-led psychodrama. Uh, and a wonderful, bizarre movie called Kiss Me Deadly. I've heard of that movie. We, we watched it for Buttonamathon one year. Yeah. Can't remember it, but I know. Yeah. I'll look it up later. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's pretty great. But yeah, uh, also Vera Cruz, which I hear is very good. But yeah, Robert Aldrich, um, quite a fine director. And uh, also, how great was Sutherland? Donald Sutherland Donald, was such Donald a Donald Sutherland, yes. <laughs> a young Donald Sutherland. It, oh, such a baby. Yeah, this was the film that brought him to prominence. I can see it, why. It was, yeah, it was not his first movie, but uh, he was a last-minute replacement for another actor. And he just stole the show as far as he could. Which is remarkable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he doesn't have yeah. many lines. He hardly yeah. says a thing, but you sure do notice him. Yeah, he's fantastic, isn't he? Yeah. 
And I love that scene where he pretends to be a general. <laughs> love it so much. <laughs> While still, every time over his shoulder, making faces at the other yes. guys. Yeah. Like, can you believe I'm getting away with this? <laughs> I love... I love how he kind of to- toes in the water, toes in the water, and then just, he's like all in. <laughs> Splashing around. Doing the oh, backstroke. so great. Yeah. All right, so I think it's time for final thoughts. Melissa, what's your final thoughts on The Dirty Dozen? I still love this movie. Oh, um, I do have one other piece of trivia. Yeah? Uh, about the Chateau, which is where I believe most of their budget went because the chateau took 85 people to build it was one of the largest movie sets ever built still it's 240 feet wide 50 feet high it took 5,400 square yards of heather 400 ferns 450 shrubs 30 spruce and six full-size willow trees to make that set and you know they built it so well that you know by the end um, of building it they uh, decided that it would take about 70 tons of explosives to blow it up. So they didn't want to get 70 tons of explosives, so they just built a section out of cork and plastic and blew that part up. (laughs) So do you know what happened to the rest of it? I don't know if it still exists, but it should. I mean, you should be able to go to the Dirty Dozen Chateau. I I would like and try and carry out the mission better than they did. <laughs> somebody somebody can make a lot of money off that shit. I'm just saying right now. I was gonna say I'd like to see that be a hotel, but then I'd be scared that Telly Savalas was lurking around some corner. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I wouldn't want Telly Savalas lurking around the corner. Yeah, it's, I mean the trick is you'd have to do the Dirty Dozen, but. One of the, and it, you know, there weren't a dozen. There were 14 in that last assault. But anyway, the point is... Well, yeah. One of your 14 is the psychotic crazy dude. 13. The guy fell in the tree and died. That's true. True. 13. Yeah. So one of them is your psychotic crazy, crazy dude, and you'd have to not tell anybody who it is. <laughs> <laughs> is this like one of those murder mystery parties? It would be great. Come on. <laughs> But they all knew he was a psychotic loon. Oh my god, that chateau would be the best place ever for paintball. <laughs> you don't want to be the Nazis, though, because you're just going to get get locked in the basement and splattered with grenade paint. Yeah, they just, they, they just pour paint down the portals like the gasoline. You're dead! <laughs> Guess you picked the wrong person to be. <laughs> Is it ever? You spend, you spend most of the game playing solitaire in a room, and then you go into a basement and get doused in paint. <laughs> Fifty dollars, please. <laughs> oh, All right, uh, Pat. But if you're a French person in that scene, you're fine. You're fine. Yeah. They all get away. Pat, final thoughts? Oh, final thoughts on this movie. Let's see. Um, Again, I'm really glad that we saw this one because I had not seen or have no recollection of the training parts. And it's Mm -hmm. funny enough that I would have, as a 10-year-old stuck when I watched it, so I probably walked in after and it was like, ooh, the good stuff. Yeah. (laughs) But um, let's see. I was also, one last thing I was thinking about having the Jim Brown and the colorblind uh, casting and the whole race thing was... How much of it was trying to also go back and say, this would have been okay then. It's okay now to have integrated groups of people, but also, you know, it would have been fine then too, because it didn't make a deal out of it, except for the one racist freak 
And the racist freak was identified as a freak. He was yeah. identified as wrong. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think... I think You were not supposed to identify with his character. But yes. they also did it in a way that it would be okay for Southern people who were still very much, no, we don't want people together, because he wasn't just wrong. He was crazy. Yeah. God spoke to him. I am vengeance of God personified. Yeah. So you can say, yeah, that's not me. Yeah, I wonder if the uh, if um, the Jim Brown character was cast or written to be the counterpoint of the bigot character. Uh, to play there certainly seemed to be uh, there certainly seemed to be some of that there as well. Because I think I think that cast would have been very lopsided with the bigot character and then a whole team of the white people. Well, there's the Hispanic person, well, there and there was the Italian-American person, yeah. which they wouldn't have liked. I mean, let's face it, there's like, what, two characters in that whole thing they would have? Yeah. That the bigot would have been okay with? Except for yeah. the fact that, you know, he was crazy? I think they were all men, because his real problem seemed to be women. Yeah. Uh, that, so that's just so creepy. So my final thoughts, Dirty Dozen, a fine film. I recommend finding a better copy than we have, which was a pretty grainy print, unfortunately. There is a lovely high-definition print out there. Yeah, so find the high-def print if you can. Uh, certainly recommend watching it uh, if uh, you enjoy sort of the mission movie-style film. This is probably one of the best examples of that of that type of movie that's out there uh we were going to do man on wire this week but uh thanks for pat for stepping in when jenna was unable to make it this weekend to be our stunt jenna all right back yay we will i swear next episode <laughs> be watching man on wire so stay tuned for that thanks for listening we're out of here bye bye we hope you enjoyed our film fixation. We'll see you next time on A Real Education. Dee, dee.